Hi, you're watching TheAnalysis.News, and I'm your host, Talia Baronchelli. In a bit, we'll be joined by member of Israeli Knesset, Dr. Ofer Kassif, to speak about Israel's ongoing occupation of the Palestinian territories and its illegal and discriminate bombardment of the Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. We're nearing the end of the year, so if you'd like to support us, you can do so by going to our website, TheAnalysis.News, and hitting the donate button at the top right corner of the screen. We really can't make this show without you, so we really rely on your support and are thankful for all of your contributions. If you're in the U.S., your contribution will be tax deductible as we are a 501c3 nonprofit in the United States. See you in a bit with Dr. Ofer Kassif. Joining me now is Dr. Ofer Kassif. He is a member of the Israeli Knesset, representing the Hadash Party, which is also known as the Democratic Front for Peace and Equality. The Hadash Party was formed in 1977 and continues to stand for Jewish-Arab cooperation. Dr. Kassif, it's really great to have you here tonight. Thank you very much. Nice to have you. I'm grateful that you're having me. So we've seen the situation in Gaza progressively deteriorate. The UN has said that now over 90% of the population has been forcibly displaced. Human Rights Watch just said that Israel is now using starvation as a tool of war, and the death toll has reached almost 20,000 Palestinians, of whom 9,000 are children. So in your view, what would you say needs to be done to end this cycle of violence? First of all, you know, uh, we have to get rid of the... Uh of the seeds of this massacre. And this is, you know, a peaceful solution to the situation. We've been saying for ages, uh, since 1967, and more so as the years went by, that the only solution is a, a, a political one, not a military one. And that means ending the occupation and the siege. The only way that the two peoples of the land, the Israelis and the Palestinians, Arabs and Jews and others, can live together and can live in peace and security and prosperity is first and foremost to end the occupation. The Palestinians, as a people, are entitled to have their own independent state. And the compromise, historical compromise, is by dividing the land alongside the state of Israel, an independent sovereign Palestinian state, uh, which should exist in Alter the old territories that Israel occupied in June 67. That means Gaza Strip, East Jerusalem, and the West Bank. No other way. That's the long, uh, in, in the long run, I wish it was in the short run, but that's the solution that we must reach for. No other solution. The two sides must understand that we are going to be here forever, both peoples. And the only way to live together is not by killing each other, but being, but by living side by side together in good neighbor, in, in good relations. And uh, in the short run, of course, what should be done is uh, to stop the war. As you said before, the, the war uh, incorporates, unfortunately, uh, war crimes. And the, the, what Hamas did on 7th of October is also a war crime and crime against humanity. This barbaric massacre against innocent civilians, children, women, and the elderly and others that Hamas did on 7th of October is something which uh, per, uh, no one can uh, uh, 
and uh, no, no one can, you know, justify whatever the situation was before. Even the crimes of the occupation and siege cannot justify such a carnage. But at the same time, even the carnage that uh, uh, was committed by Hamas cannot justify the massacre that Israel has been carrying out against the Palestinians in Gaza. Uh, as you said before, the death toll is incredible. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm afraid that this that uh, it's not 20 or almost 20 because there are so many missing, and unfortunately, the assault still goes on. So uh, I am afraid, of course, I don't know the numbers, but I am afraid or I, that the death toll is already very much closer to 25,000, 30,000. And as you said before, uh, at le- and it was published as well, at least 70% uh, of those who were killed uh, are innocent civilians, especially children and women. Uh, this is something that, can, that is intolerable. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, the international community doesn't do anything to stop that. That should be done immediately. First, because as I said before, it involves war crimes. This is a massacre that should be stopped. Uh, first and foremost, for the, of course, for the well-being and benefit of the Palestinians. But this is also an Israeli interest as far as I'm concerned. The government of Israel uh, is uh, anti-Israeli, actually. I put it that way, because the government of Israel, the only thing that the government of Israel, and first and foremost the prime minister, are interested in is their own survival. Nothing else. They don't care about the lives of Palestinians for sure, but they don't care either for the lives of Israelis. Those who are killed, the hostages. I mean, the hostages are still there suffering. Uh, uh, I'm I'm afraid that many uh, many of them already died. I'm afraid that uh, some of them are going to die in the in the future because they that they uh, they live under terrible conditions. And Israel, unfortunately, the government of Israel is much more interested in revenge against Gaza rather than uh, releasing the hostages and bring them home safely. So ceasefire and stopping ending the war, a release of all hostages, exchange of prisoners, and a beginning a real and rapid political process towards ending the occupation and reaching a just peace between uh, both uh, parties, that's a must. Well, I do want to speak about Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's efforts to actually prop up Hamas. But before we speak about that, there's one thing that I've noticed as an outsider, as someone who's not Israeli, and that's the sort of normalization of this dehumanizing rhetoric on the part of many Israeli officials. I mean, we just heard one member of a local council in an Israeli town close to Lebanon saying that Gaza needs to be flattened like Auschwitz. We heard the defense minister, Yoav Galant, saying, you know, that Palestinians are human animals. And of course, the finance minister, Bezalel Smodrich, has even said that Palestinians aren't a people in itself. Um, So would you say that this is more of a right-wing phenomena, or is this a sort of general normalization of this dehumanizing rhetoric that's taking place within Israeli society? Look, I'll be very frank and blunt with you. The, the government of Israel is a fascist government, and there are components which are even worse. Uh, there are components. There is, a, there is a party in the coalition whose may, uh, uh, most of its members 
profoundly believe in racial theory and in Jewish supremacy. This is something which is unacceptable. Now I'm saying that because it's relevant. Uh, not too many years ago, actually less than two years ago, those uh, uh, parties, especially the Ben Gvir's gang, who is now the uh, minister for so-called national security, although the only thing that he, he, he uh, has been achieving in doing is uh, bringing insecurity, but is uh, a supporter of a mass murderer. He had a picture on his living room, in his living room, of Bauer Goldstein who killed 29 Palestinian Muslims during their prayer in uh, El Khalil in Hebron about 30 years ago. So that's the minister of, uh, of national security at the moment, and he's not alone there. There's a bunch of uh, thugs like him, racists, who don't care about the life of, uh, of Palestinians for sure and, and, and know for the lives of others because they are messianic. They believe in a kind of a messianic, you know, project. And one of them even said before the massacre that the land of Israel should be acquired uh, by, by suffering. Perhaps they think that the killing of uh, uh, 1,200 Israelis is part of the suffering. And they, are, they were against any kind of a deal for releasing the hostages. They don't care for their lives. They are dreaming and saying that Israel should occupy the Gaza Strip and re-establish the settlements there. So they have this crazy messianic deadly uh, uh, dream, which is in fact a nightmare for all of us, the Palestinians and Israelis alike. Anyway, unfortunately, those thugs, those racists, who were, until two years ago, more or less, quite marginal, they, now they dominate the government. They dominate the government because Netanyahu doesn't care about anything but his own political survival, and not only political, his civic survival out of prison. As you probably know, there are three serious charges against Netanyahu, uh, uh, he's accused in three different uh, uh, cases of corruption, bribery, etc. The only thing that drives him is being is staying out of prison. That's the only thing he cares about. Because of that, he legitimized and normalized those racist thugs that I mentioned before because he is dependent upon them. He doesn't care that they harm the, the interest of the state of Israel and the Israelis, let alone of Palestinians. He doesn't care. So because of that, they actually dominate the government. It is true that they are not the majority among the ministers, but they dominate the, the government because they hold Netanyahu as their own hostage. They can achieve almost everything from Netanyahu. So he allows them to uh, by legalization and different things, different crazy decisions that are uh, accepted in the government and the cabinet. Crazy things. He allows them to do so, and he aligns, he joins forces with them for his own sake, at the expense of everybody here, Israelis and Palestinians alike. Now, because of that, the thoughts that until two years ago, even less than that, were regarded by the vast majority of Israelis as crazy, now they are, they are becoming mainstream because of Netanyahu and his dependency upon those racist thugs. So now we can hear such slogans 
criminal slogans that call to, for instance, a minister, one of those among those thugs from this racist gang, who is a minister, and not only a bigot, but also not very clever, to say the least. Uh, he actually said not too long ago that one option is to bomb Gaza Strip with an atomic bomb. The vice pre, uh, chairperson of the Knesset from the Likud party, from the party of Netanyahu, said that Gaza should be burned down. You can hear it. People use the term elimination, including members of the Knesset and their, and, and their, co, uh, their uh, co, uh, companions in their parties, in the, uh, in the settlements. So the language of elimination, the language of eliminating a people, which involves necessarily dehumanization and demonization of the Palestinians, became, unfortunately, the norm. Of course, not all Israelis think like that, and I guess that not even the majority, but they dominate the public discourse, including in the media. You can hear such terms in the media. You know, it reminds me that a philosopher, a French philosopher, Albert Mimi, who died two years ago, I think, in one of his famous books, he said, in other words, that the occupier doesn't like to see a monster when he looks at the mirror. So in order to justify the crimes that an occupier does, and occupiers always, eventually, deteriorate into crimes because eventually occupation leads to resistance. So in order to refrain from seeing yourself or recognizing yourself as the monster, you have to justify the crimes that you do. And you do that by, demoniz by demonizing the occupied. It, it's the same everywhere. It's not uh, something that was born under the Israeli occupation, the slaveholders in the United in, in the United States in America did so. The Germans did so too uh, with the Jews, and the uh, the apartheid regime did in in South Africa did that did that with uh, the non-whites, especially with the blacks. Of course, you know there was an hierarchy of different so-called races, and same here, a language. Of this is the language of occupation. In that sense, I repeat what I said before, ending the occupation is also the interest of Israel because Israel has been turning into a monstrous regime because of the occupation. Uh, the Palestinians should be liberated from the occupation, but we, the Israelis, should be liberated from the occupation as well. Demonization is indeed the other side of the coin of the occupation and the brutality of the occupation. And similar to the philosopher Memmi, uh, Franz Fanon, another post-colonial writer, also said that the violence unleashed by the colonizers on the colonized also affects the colonizers themselves. I mean, it has an effect on them too and on everyone. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, they are not the only ones. And uh, I want to be very clear we in Hadash and myself, of course, as part of Hadash, we support non-violent resistance to the occupation. Of course, uh, we oppose totally and condemn totally the massacre carried out by Hamas. 
that should be emphasized. But unfortunately, the writing was on the wall. Not the, I'm not talking about the massacre as it was, but it was very clear that one or another thing would have happened, would have been, it was going to happen. Because the occupation began in the last few years, especially in the last year, or even more so, the occupation became more violent, more brutal. Pogroms by settlers against Palestinians, innocent civilians, shepherds and farmers, etc., uh, in the West Bank became a daily issue. It was very clear that something that it was going to explode. Unfortunately, it did. And as I said, it is the interest of both peoples to end the occupation and reach a just peace. Yeah, and while this war has been continuing in Gaza, there's also been a sort of war by the settlers on the West Bank and on the Palestinians of the West Bank as well. I mean, I think there was a shipment of 27,000 guns, which was prevented by the U.S. because there were fears that it would go into the hands of violent settlers. And I was wondering if you could comment on this regime of administrative detention, because so many Palestinians are unlawfully arrested and then placed in detention without trial. Why do you think this issue has only been really recently spoken about? Unfortunately, I think it's not spoken about even now, not enough. Definitely not in Israel. Look, Israel was uh, established in 1948. Since the very first second that uh, Israel was established as a state, there were two systems of emergency rules that are still on. And uh, one of them allows, I mean, that that should be, uh, you know, people should absorb what I just said. Israel has been under, formally speaking, Israel has been under an emergency, a, a state of emergency for 75 successive years. There was not even one second since Israel was established as a state that there was no a state of emergency. And given the state of emergency, there's also, you know, emergency rules. One of them is so-called, I mean, it's a sugar-coated, it's a sugar-coated term to call it administrative detention. In fact, this is kidnapping people and putting them behind bars. I mean, that's the real way to, the, to describe it. I mean, even before evaluating the, before saying if it's good or bad, this is, this is real. I mean, if someone comes to your house or your field when you're working on it or to your office and without a, a, any and without charges, just take you away and put you behind bars for one month or six months or years. I mean, sometimes it's, it, it, it can be years without charges, without seeing a lawyer, without being uh, brought in front of a judge. This is because part of the occupation, the military occupation, is that the Palestinians, this is part of the apartheid system as well, the Palestinians in the, in, in the occupied territories are under military rule. That means that they, when they, are, they are also under military set of laws. The settlers who live at the same, in the same place, of course, the settlements are altogether illegal according to the international law, etc., etc. Just put it aside for a second. But if you are, for instance, a Palestinian, and I'm your neighbor, I mean, I wish it's not exactly good neighbors, uh, yes, but uh, anyway, and I just live two meters from you as a Jew, a Jewish settler. I am subordinated to the Israeli civic law. 
you are subordinated to the military law. And part of the military law means that it's much more easier for the state to put you under so-called this sugar-coated term, a, a, a administrative detention. Thousands and thousands of Palestinians since the occupation in 67 began have been put under this administrative detention, which I prefer to call uh, legal hostages, quote-unquote, of course. And this is part of the demonization and, of course, of the uh, oppression of the Palestinians. It's very, very, you know, uh, uh, common in uh, colonialist regimes. Everybody knows about it in colonialist regimes. The occupier, the colonizer that uh, wants to oppress any kind of uh, resistance uh, of the occupied uses uh, different uh, instruments. One of them is the so-called administrative detention. And uh, I guess you know Carl Schmitt. I think uh, Carl Schmitt is very useful in understanding that, in using two terms. He actually used a, a, a combined. One is saying that who is the sovereign? The sovereign, according to Carl Schmitt, is not uh, the people, even in a so-called democracy, but it is the one who dictates the exception. And uh, this is a, a very clear example because uh, those Palestinians who are put under the so-called, again, uh, uh, administrative detention, this is, as it were, an exception that the state apparatus dictates. But unfortunately, given the occupation, the exception became the rule. Another other way around, this is one thing. Another thing that Carl Schmitt used to describe politics in general, he said that like in aesthetics, the distinction is between the beautiful and the ugly. Of course, I have to refer to it uh, quite superficially given our uh, platform, but uh, perhaps one day you can invite me to give some uh, lectures in Germany. I love that. <laughs> but anyway... Uh, yeah, he actually said, like in aesthetics, that there's distinction between the beautiful and the ugly, and like in ethics, the good and the bad, in politics, is the friend and foe. And, and the foe is also used sometimes to unite so-called the, the nation. And this is another part of the occupation, the ongoing system in, in Israel, which we struggle against. And again, I, I want to emphasize it. I know that I repeat myself, but it's very important for me because I'm afraid that many people uh, around the world do not understand that. The struggle as far as we are concerned, as we see it, is not between Israelis and Palestinians. And here is a class issue. It is between the oppressed and the oppressor, between the exploiter and the exploited. And, the, and this distinction is much more important. So we in Hadash, for instance, Palestinians and Jews together, and some others, we see ourselves as part of those who oppose the oppression. It doesn't matter for us if we are Jews or Palestinians or Argentinian uh, Christian, for more, just, you know, hypothetically. Uh, for us, it's important to refer to the situation as the one that distinguishes not between the peoples, but between the exploited and the exploited, the oppressor and the uh, oppressed. And to take the right side, of course, given the a, a struggle that we agree with, which is none, which is no violent, it's not a violent one, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. 
and we continue. It's tough, but we never give up. Well, I think it's really important that you brought up the class element because arguably there's a class divide within the Palestinian territories as well. And perhaps there are some Palestinian elite who are somehow benefiting from the occupation. But most importantly, the network of Israeli elite who are propped up and supported by the U.S. and different military and industrial defense tech companies are able to perpetuate the occupation. So how do you see this convergence of elite interests propelling the conflict even further? Look, uh, Lenin, of course, wrote a lot about uh, national conflicts and occupation. And especially, of course, in the era of imperialism, analyzing the First uh, World War, given imperialism as this, uh, and, the, and capitalism, imperialism as a, as a stage of capitalism, etc. I, I would like to use, if I may, one thing that I think is very, very important that Lenin referred to in, in length in more than one essay. And I think it's very crucial to understand this uh, a situation which I don't want to call a, a conflict because conflict assumes a symmetry or, or, or a balance which does not exist. Uh, and what Lenin said is that a situation of occupation and war assists the bourgeoisie on both sides. Uh, the bourgeois or bourgeoisie? How do I say noun as a noun? Is bourgeois or bourgeoisie? The bourgeoisie, yeah. I'm always confused in that. Uh, He said that the bourgeoisie of the occupying uh, nation and the occupied nation used the situation to mobilize their own proletarian to their own side. Why? Because once there is a sense of conflict, once there is a war, or, or an armed struggle, whatever, between occupied and occupier. I do not refer now to the situation in the Middle East, Israel, Palestinians, but in general. Instead of struggling against your exploiter, which is the, which is the bourgeoisie, you actually join forces with, bourgeois, with the, your, your bourgeoisie against the other people, whether as an occupier that uh, oppresses their resistance, or you are occupied that carry uh, carry on with the resistance to the occupier. So Lenin himself used the term hostility. National hostility, hostility serves the economic and political interests of the ruling classes because they that way they can you know divert the rage, the frustration, the alienation. A, from a, a class-based one to a national-based one. This is exactly what I think we should pay attention to, that those who actually benefit from the ongoing occupation on top of using cheap labor, Palestinian cheap labor, of using, you know, where in, in north of Gaza, for instance, there's a, apparently a, there are some resources like gas, etc. Beyond that, the hostility serves them because as long as the occupation goes on, the Palestinian proletarian and, uh, and even peasants uh, will 
see the Israelis, generally speaking, of course. I, I have to simplify the, the, the picture. Obviously, it's much more complicated. But for our conversation, or in for analytical purposes, if I may say so, uh, the ruled classes, Palestinian ruled classes, are going to see most, uh, not their own exploit, Palestinian exploiters as the so-called rival or even enemy, but the Israelis and vice versa. They exploited within Israel, the Israel, they exploited Israelis, especially the proletarian, will not see their own ex, uh, uh, employers as their exploiters and class enemy, but the Palestinians, who's benefit from that? Who's going to benefit from that? The exploiters. So ending the occupation, besides being an end in itself because it involves a directly oppression and exploitation, it will also reduce, using the language of Lenin, the hostility between the peoples, and in that sense, not only will give us a better future to leave us good neighbors, but will also allow us, make it easier on us to divert our rage against our so-called domestic exploiters. So there is a huge class issue. And of course, we can't forget the role that the United States plays in delivering weapons and delivering unconditional aid to Israel. And I did want to pivot to something historically that took place in the 90s, to the Oslo Accords. And oftentimes people say that it was Yasser Arafat who just walked away and, and the the conversations and the negotiations fell apart because of him. But what was it that was actually being offered at the time? What sort of Palestinian state was being offered? It doesn't seem like it was really much. Look, that's, that, that, that is, that's a question that I find it very difficult to answer, not even to you, but for my, to myself. First of all, because there are so many details and so many, you know, uh, facts and the uh, data uh, that uh, is questionable, uh, question, they are questionable. So I do believe that Arafat and the PLO believed that the Oslo Accord will eventually lead to the Palestinian liberation and the independent state alongside Israel. I cannot tell you that for sure. I wasn't there. And uh, from the, what I know, I in, I tend to believe that they thought and they perhaps they were quite optimistic. And I, I, I'm saying that because I heard an interview with Hanana Shrawi that you may know. Uh, just a few, uh, I think it was when, uh, on the anniversary of the Oslo Accords, the 30th anniversary, September. And she said, not in those exact words, but she said that she warned Arafat that Israel was not really going towards the solution he believed they were going to that she warned Arafat and probably others of his uh, closed ones uh, politically, that they believe that the Israelis uh, are going with them side by side to, towards ending the occupation was a false belief. So I take from that that 
that Arafat himself and others, again, I, unfortunately, I've never met him, so I never asked him and never talked to him. Uh, so everything I said is a speculation. But I tend to believe what I read and heard, that there was a belief, an optimistic belief, I don't want to say a naive belief, that uh, in the end of the day, a Palestinian independent state is waiting. Now, as far as the Israeli part is concerned, I'm, I don't know if Rabin and others uh, wanted to get there. I know for sure that those uh, in the government from Meretz, for instance, they did uh, support a Palestinian state alongside Israel. So whether they planned to get there or not, in, uh, in what way, what was the process, I'm not sure. The only thing I'm sure about is that the assassination of Rabin is the beginning of the decline. That's for sure. Uh, no one can say what would have happened had Rabin stayed alive. Of course, this is a stupid speculation that historians, for instance, always, you know, uh, uh, hate to be asked. But, uh, so I, I, I don't know. But for sure, the assassination of Rabin brought uh, uh, Netanyahu in '95 to power. And although Netanyahu continued one way or another with all the problems and the reservations, you know, uh, didn't totally abolish the Oslo Accords. We know that he followed the Y Agreement, etc. And by the way, Rabin made a lot of mistakes. For instance, I think that the, probably the main mistake uh, or even seen that Rabin did is, was that after the assassination of the, those 29 Palestinians in Hebron by the settlers, there was a chance and many actually advised Rabin to use this terrible incident, this carnage, to, to uh, take out this cancer from the center of Hebron. That means the settlers. And Rabin didn't. He refused to do so for one reason or another. It cost the life of more Palestinians afterwards, but also it made this uh, cancerous settlement in the midst of a, a Palestinian city more, even more deadly, more violent, and more dangerous. But uh, as I began to say before, the assassination of Rabin created a, a decline, a, a continuous decline, which we can see now the consequences that uh, Israel, unfortunately, has turned into a more brutal occupier, uh, controlled by the most fanatic, messianic, and deadly uh, settlers. And uh, it's, it's much more dangerous to the region as a whole, not only to Palestinians and Israelis, and uh, I lament that the world uh, doesn't want to, to be aware of that, doesn't want to do anything about that. Well, on your point about Rabin, I mean, Mark Regev, who's the spokesperson for the Netanyahu administration, was also saying, I mean, I don't know if this is accurate or apocryphal, but he was saying that Rabin didn't really believe in a true Palestinian state, a fully-fledged state. I don't know if he's making that up. Look, I, I know those interpretations. It's very, very easy to speak in the name of the dead, you know. I don't want to do that. And by the way, 
more often than not, as history shows, uh, you know how a specific process begins, you never know how it ends. Uh, the goal was not interested in the freedom of Algeria, you know, and we know how it ended. So, and this is only one example, there are many other examples. And uh, so I, I cannot say what Rabin actually wanted. I know that for sure that, uh, for instance, you know, it's very funny because, or ironic if you like, when the first Intifada began in the end of 87, I was the first uh, reserve uh, soldier who was imprisoned for refusing to serve in the Palestinian occupied territories. And the last time I was imprisoned for the very same thing, altogether I uh, was four times in military prison for refusing. So the last time that I, uh, the fourth and last time that I was in prison for that was September 93. And we, I remember that we were taken out of our cells to watch the shade Arafat and Rabin uh, at the White House shaking hands. Now, I remember that because a, a friend of mine, a very <laughs> acclaimed journalist, wrote a piece after the, after the Oslo Accords when I was in prison. And I remember that he wrote about, my, about me, that I was skeptic about the Oslo Accords, but still hopeful. And it was true. Uh, and I can never tell what would have happened had Rabin was alive. Perhaps you, you are right and nothing would have happened. Who knows? Well, if you have time, I would like to ask you quickly about um, Bibi Netanyahu because he recently has said that he doesn't really believe in a Palestinian state in the day after. He, he is the one to ensure that a two-state solution won't come about and that his legacy has been to prevent the creation of uh, a two-state solution. Um, so how would you say... Or how would you assess his legacy? Is it true, according to uh, former Prime Minister Ehud Olmert, that he was involved in propping up Hamas to ensure that the Palestinian Authority wouldn't be a legitimate partner which, with which Israel could negotiate with and that instead they would want Hamas to be there to ensure that there'd be no... Absolutely. I mean, uh, look, as I said before, Netanyahu is, Netanyahu's only interest is Netanyahu. Uh, he cares only about himself. Even in the in the late 80s, when Yitzhak Shamir formed the Likud party, who was even more to the right than Netanyahu, he warned the Likud from Netanyahu. I mean, before Netanyahu was in Israeli politics, uh, he was then the ambassador to the UN, if I remember correctly. Already then, Shamir warned about him, and he said that Netanyahu is, uh, is dangerous. So... Uh, Netanyahu, in my view, is a psychopath. I mean, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a psychiatric, so I'm not using this term in the, uh, you know, accurate uh, clinical, pathological uh, uh, sense, but he acts as if he was a psychopath. By the way, a psychiatric, an Israeli psychiatric, uh, 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 two months of, uh, ago, something like that, before the massacre, I think, uh, but I'm not sure. He wrote a piece in, in the in Haaretz newspaper in which he said that Netanyahu was a psychopath, as a psychiatric. 
So uh, it's not, uh, you know, uh, uh, it's when I'm saying that Netanyahu is a psychopath, is is not something, you know, totally uh, out of the blue. And by the way, this psychiatric wrote it because he wrote it against Netanyahu. He was summoned to interrogation in the police. But that's another issue that's part of what's going on within Israel now, which Israel is on a process of fascization toward dictatorship. You know, basic civil rights are, uh, are, uh, are, so, are under attack. People are, like myself and others are persecuted. Students have been uh, uh, suspended from universities because of posts and tweets. People were fired from their jobs, especially Palestinian citizens and others. It's There's a total prohibition on uh, demonstrations in uh, Palestinian cities within Israel. It's just the tip of the iceberg. There is a move towards a full-fledged fascist dictatorship on top of the ethnic cleansing in the West Bank and the a, 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 a criminal assault on Gaza. But what I uh, began uh, uh, to say about uh, Netanyahu is that he cares only about himself. So he also, he, because of that, he may change his attitude and uh, and endeavors and deeds according to what he thinks may serve him better. Now, it is true. Everybody knows about it. That's a matter of fact. It's not an interpretation. It's not a, you know, a, an assumption. It is proved. Netanyahu said with his own voice and was quoted in 2019 in a convention of the Likud party that one that doesn't want to see a Palestinian state must weaken the Palestinian Authority and strengthen the Hamas. Smotrich, probably the most fanatic and extremist in the uh, this government, said in 2015, and I quote, the Palestinian Authority is a burden, Hamas is an asset. So why did, and, and it's not only words, under the, the rule of Netanyahu, Qatar transferred more than billion dollars to Hamas via Israel thanks to Netanyahu. Netanyahu supported that. He was in charge of on those suitcases full of dollars that went to the Hamas, not to the people of Gaza. I mean, Hamas is a brutal dictatorship. Hamas doesn't do anything in favor of the people of Gaza. It does everything in favor of itself. Which, what do you think they use the money for? For those tunnels that are now bombarded. For weapons. And that was not only under the rule of Netanyahu, it was given the, the consent of Netanyahu, the active cooperation of Netanyahu. He wanted strong Hamas and weak Palestinian authority because that way he could create first a division between among the Palestinians, divide and rule, classic divide and rule, classic colonialist attitude, and using the rule of uh, Hamas in the in Gaza Strip to say that there's no one to talk to because they are two extremists. So that's part of the legacy of Netanyahu, if you like. He will be remembered not only as the worst prime minister in the history of Israel, but also as the deadliest one. 
not only because, not only by assaulting and killing thousands and thousands of Palestinians, but also because of his responsibility for the carnage that Hamas did in the south of Israel, and also because he doesn't care and doesn't do anything to save the poor hostages that Hamas holds. He will be remembered for that. Well, Dr. Kassif, it was great speaking to you, and I hope that we'll be able to have you on again soon for you to share insights as there are so many other facets of what's going on that we can speak about, and it was really great to get your insights on this. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thank you. And thank you for watching TheAnalysis.News. If you'd like to support the work that we do, feel free to go to our website, TheAnalysis.News, and make a donation by hitting the button at the top right corner of the screen. Thanks and see you next time.